0: Powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for Jesus. And uh, we thank you for the power of his name and the glory of his name. And I want to pray uh, that we uh, would, would be the church you created us to be as we close out this series Uh, thinking about your church, um, I pray that we would be, um, as the scripture says, joined together, uh, unified, and and raise up uh, to be uh, your temple, uh, the the people in which you dwell. We thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Several uh, years ago now, I mean, lots of years ago, it feels like now, uh, we bought our first house in Lansing. And we really, really uh, loved that house as we were living in it. Uh, And we had this interesting experience. We moved here in 2006 uh, and left the house kind of behind to sell. And the house just did not sell like right away. Uh, It it sold uh, in the first quarter of the next year, didn't sell. Uh, right away and so in the fall after I'd been here a few months fall going into winter we said we better go just get the house ready for the fall little fall cleanup get it ready for winter and all that and we got to Lansing and went into the house and we both walked in and we were like I remember this house being nicer (laughs) Um, this this is not like a a great house And, and I'll tell you the big difference was is that our pictures were not on the wall our furniture was not in the living room. We didn't have kids yet, but our cats were not in the dwelling. Yes, there was a time in my life where I owned cats. I- I've repented of my sin, um, but um, our cats were not our cats were not in the house. And so when we walked in, it all just kind of fell flat. The the, the life wasn't in the house and nothing had really changed, but just our stuff wasn't there, our pictures weren't there, our family wasn't there, so everything changed in that moment. And I think that we forget that sometimes about our homes. It's that it's really not the furnishings, it's the life that resides in the house. I was reading an article the other day about the HGTVing of America Uh, And it was a really interesting article that we watch these shows and we kind of buy into this deception that it's the furnishings that make the home. So like, man, I can't live in a house without subway tile backsplash or marble countertops or the best appliances, and those things are really nice. But what makes a house, what makes a home, is the life and the relationship that takes place in that home. We were actually watching an episode on HGTV where... This woman um, wanted her kitchen to be redone. And she and her husband kind of run out of money. They weren't, weren't able to get it done. And she just thought, I mean, the kitchen looked totally fine to me. Maybe my priorities are lower than they should be. I don't know. It looked totally fine to me. But she was like, it is so gross in there. The, the furnishings are so gross. Um, And she said, I won't even go in there anymore. And so her husband and their children were eating meals in the kitchen, and she would stand at the doorway refusing to go in. That's the HGTV of America. You can't expect me to eat in this squalor, right? With these appliances from 1990. 1990 wasn't terrible, right? So (laughs) this is the HGTV of of America. And I just was watching this episode going, man, alive. You talk about adventures and missing the point. She's missing out on life with her family because she is bought into a deception that life is found in the furnishings. And I think that can sometimes happen with people in their relationship to the church, especially the church in America. We really get captivated by the furnishings, right? The quality of the building, the lights, the videos that engage, the quality of the worship service, the attractiveness of the preacher. Oh, wait, no, maybe that's not what it is, All right, no, that's, maybe that's not a thing, excuse me, All right? Um, and none of that is particularly bad, but it just misses the point. What makes a home great isn't the furnishings, it's the life found inside. So we've been in this series talking about the church, and one of the images that I wanted to close out this series with before we start into Romans uh, next Sunday is this image of the church is the temple of God. And I think that because of how God worked in the Old Testament, because of how he worked through Israel, we really easily misunderstand this. We think that the temple of God, the house of God, is found in the building. And listen, I think there are reasons to keep buildings up. We've done a massive renovation in our building. I think there are reasons to keep buildings up. It's good to be a good steward and all of that stuff. But that God resides in a building is not one of them. The church has always been the people. And as I'm going to show you in several texts today, God resides with his people. So that makes us as a church the temple, the church, the people. We are the temple of God. The life that I've been referring to inside the building is God in us and through us. God resides in the lives of his people. The people as the dwelling of God is the life that is found inside the church. Let me show you this in a couple different texts today. All right, this is Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Right? In him, let's read that again. In him the whole building is joined together, right? He's not talking about screws and nails and all of that stuff. Now, he's talking about people. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, he's eventually going to, as you can see toward the end, he gets into this temple language. But before that, he says, man, you are fellow citizens. All right? I want you to really internalize this. You are fellow citizens and members of a massive household. In other words, when you gave your life to Christ, when I gave my life to Christ, you didn't just become a believer in Jesus, although you did for sure. You didn't just become a believer in Jesus. What he is saying is, what Paul is saying is, you also joined a people. Right? You joined a people when you gave your life to Christ. This is why when you hear criticism of the Big C Church... You might sometimes, when you hear that criticism of the global church, you might find yourself getting a little defensive. They're not talking about your church, hopefully. They're not talking about a church you've ever attended. It is just a general criticism. But you find yourself getting defensive. Why? Because you belong to a global church. It's why when you hear about Christians on the other side of the planet being persecuted and mistreated, your heart kind of breaks and you get a pit in your stomach. Why? You don't know them. You've probably never even visited their country. Why does that happen? Because you belong not just to Christ. You belong to a people. It's why when there's a really successful venture, especially in the United States when it comes to Christianity, like the passion of the Christ or the nativity or the chosen, you feel this sense of pride and thanksgiving. Why? You didn't invest. I bet you wish you did, but you didn't invest. I, I could retire early if I'd invested. You didn't invest. Right? You're not making any money off this. You feel joy, though. Why? Because you are a part of a people, And he says, what we are built on, as a, as a kind of global, Christ-centered church, what we are built on is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. A few years ago now, uh, we did a series on the book of Acts, and I just found, I, I don't know about you guys, but I just found that that series moved me so much when I thought about the foundation for the church that the apostles and prophets laid, the sermons they preached. The churches they started, the issues they faced, the persecution they endured. They built their foundation of faith for us. And honestly, it's not just them. I bet when you can look back, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, I bet you can look back and you can see a foundation of faith that has been laid for you that goes even beyond the apostles and the prophets, but maybe in your own family or your own church family, that you can see, man, this person laid a foundation of faith for me. I think about my mother as someone that did this for me. All right. My mother w- worked kind of behind the scenes. She did not have kind of public gifts. Uh, she was a, a servant of servants. And I think when she was alive, uh, she passed away a long time ago. But when she were alive, I think she would swear to you that my dad, who had very public gifts of leadership and, and teaching, I think she would say that his contributions made a difference and hers didn't. I think she would say that. And she was completely wrong about that. I'll tell you, when she passed away, 500 people came out to her funeral to pay her respects to her for a card she had sent, a dinner she had made, an encouragement she gave. Her life had a tremendous impact. And she paved this legacy of faith for me. She paved paved a legacy of faith. And I bet you have one too. It may not have been your mom or your dad, but maybe you would say it was an uncle, or an elder, or a pastor, or a youth minister. Maybe it's not someone in your nuclear family. Maybe it's someone in extended, maybe a friend. And you would say, man, when I look at them, they kind of paved the way of faith for me. And I think that sometimes on a holiday weekend like Labor Day, like what? What are we supposed to do this weekend for sure? I mean, I know what what I'm doing, you know, grilling out and all that stuff, but what are we supposed to do? I'm not totally sure what we're supposed to do, but I think one thing that is good to do is to remember the people that labored for you, that paved the way in leadership or preaching or teaching or example setting or whatever the case may be, that this person paved the way for me to later receive the faith. They have built this foundation of faith. And while it's true, it's crucial to remember that, that they built this foundation. It's important to remember also, Paul says, that the cornerstone of the foundation laid, the cornerstone is not them. They're not the cornerstone of your faith. You're going to get into trouble if they, because they were great and they laid a foundation, but one thing I know about them and one thing you know about them too, they were not perfect. And we get into trouble when we view the person that laid foundation as the cornerstone. That's a huge mistake. The cornerstone was, is, and will always be Jesus. And that's important to remember because if the cornerstone is right, I'm not like an architect. I don't build houses. Right? I know it's a shocker, but all right, if the cornerstone is right, you can build a building that is right. And thank goodness for us, our cornerstone, Jesus, is right. His teachings are right. His example is right. His life is right. Is right. His sacrifice is right. And his resurrection is right. And listen, anything good that the church is, the global church I'm talking about now, but also us individually, anything the good that the church is, and listen, there is a lot of good about the church. It has become kind of the cultural norm to criticize the church, and we do things that are worthy of criticism to be sure. But there is a lot right about the local church. And when the local church is right, when we're loving one another well, when we're serving our community, when we're practicing generosity, when we're speaking the truth in love, when we're setting an example for our culture, there is a lot to love about the local church. But anything we are that is right is because we have a cornerstone who was and is and will always be right. Amen? So when you look at the goodness and the grace and the beauty of the local church, and there is a lot of it, right? I know we love to criticize it, and I can fall into that too. But there is a lot to love. And anything we are that is right is because he's right. So Paul calls the church a people. From every ethnic background, every racial background, every economic background, he encourages them to come together. United around this person, Jesus. In whom he says, the whole building, it's in Christ, the whole building, right, is joined together. And when we come together in unity, when we come together, we become the temple. We become this people in whom God resides. The temple language would have been really profound in the first century because the temple and their kind of Jewish. Mindset, going back to the Old Testament, the temple was the place that God lived. It was God's residence, and it was nice. It should be, right? right? If, you, if you think your furnishing should be right, how should God's furnishings be, right? The, the furnishings should be nice, but through Jesus, things changed. And the people, not the building, the people became the residents of God. Like we said last week, does he reside in me and and you? Yes, he resides in us. This text teaches that too. But there is something really beautiful that happens and something really powerful that happens when the church comes together in unity. When the church joins together, he builds us into this building of God and he resides in us corporately. Interesting piece of history. The text I just read to you, was written in about 60 A.D., all right, about, about 60 A.D. The temple in Jerusalem, all right, the physical temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., and this question around 70 A.D. began to really emerge about, especially in in the Jewish line of thought of man, the temple's been destroyed. Where does God live now? Has God like left the building? Has he gone to heaven and he's done with planet earth? Where does God reside now? And it was the Christians who taught in the first century. He resides in his people. He resides with his church. So here's the deal. You're, you're not just like attending a service. I hope that is not your, your kind of visual of the church, that I just attend a service and I go home life as usual. You are a part of this huge thing that God is doing in the world throughout all modern history and even today, that God is inviting his people to his home called the church, not the building, but a people And we get to this amazing kind of front row seat of what God is doing in us and through us as the whole building joins together and becomes this temple in which God resides. Let me show you another text. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship uh, can light have with the darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols. For we are the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will live with them and walk Among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's 2 Corinthians 6. So he starts in this text with this idea of do not be yoked with unbelievers. Let's talk about what he means by this just for a minute. Because what Paul is not saying here is that you shouldn't be friends with people who are not believers. That is not what Paul is saying, is that all of your believers should be, all of your friends should be believers. Uh, All of your friends should be Christ followers. That is not what he's saying. I actually think the Bible is really clear that we are to share our faith and be an example to those that are far from God because we love him and we love them. So when he says don't be yoked with unbelievers, he's not saying don't have friends that don't know Christ. We, We should have friends that don't know Christ. What he's saying is this, be friends with them, but do not be heading in the same direction as them. That's what he's teaching is that be friends, but do not walk in the same direction as them. A yoke is placed on two cows side by side to plow a field, according to Wikipedia. I don't have any personal experience with this. Thank goodness for Wikipedia. I don't know how people preach before that. But um, it's placed on two cows to plow the field, but in order for it to work, you can't have two cows heading in the same direction they got to be walking in the same direction. So he he asked these questions. What does righteousness have to do with wickedness? What does light have in common with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? You can't head in the same direction as them. And I have to say, as I kind of view the big C church, the global church, this is becoming a concern for me as I view our culture. Throughout history, the church has been this gritty, against the grain, resistant people. At one point, you know how God's people were referred to? People would see God's church and they would say, oh, they're peculiar, strange, unusual. And I am concerned that the church of Jesus Christ, that we are not peculiar anymore. Instead, we are typical. And I want to raise the red flag on this. Our views of sex and sexuality have become, even within the church, typical. Our views on life and the sanctity of it are typical. Our views on morals and morality, they are becoming typical. And it shouldn't be this way. We are called to be this gritty, resistant, against the grain, holy people. And I want us to raise that flag again. Why? Why are we called to be this way? The text tells us because we are the temple of the living God. What does that mean? Paul says, first of all, it means God resides in our midst. God is our God. Listen to what he says. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And as our God, he calls us out. He says, now, everybody may be heading this, this direction. You resist heading in this direction, and you head this, this way. You are a holy, separate righteous people in me. He's like our Father. I've always loved this imagery because here's the truth. I don't run around bossing your kids around. I shouldn't anyway, right? Try not to do that. I don't run around bossing your kids around. Why? They're not mine. Now Sam is here in the front row. He will tell you I boss mine around every single day and twice on Sunday. I boss my kids around. Right? Right? And and I don't boss your kids around. I I just don't do it. You know them more. You love them more. You get them more. So you boss your kids around. I boss mine around. And you should be the one with your kids. And I should be the one with my kids laying down the law. Because I would guess in this room, we have just different mindsets when it comes to this. Some of you are like really strict on screen time or food or manners. And we call out from our kids. We call out the things that are important to us. And so, the God of money, not the God of the Bible, the God of pleasure, the God of advancement, those gods are going to call out different things from the culture than the God of the Bible. And we have to decide which God is leading us to life. I love how Joshua said in the Old Testament, As for me and my house, rest of culture can go wherever they want. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve The Lord. So Paul says, because we are the temple and God resides in us, he says, and God's calling us out. He says, I love how he ends it. He says, let's purify ourselves, let's perfect holiness. And because we are the temple, we know that this is not a command without an empowerment. That's just not fair. Right when, when you do it the opposite direction, when you command without empowerment, you are setting someone up for failure. When your boss commands you to do something, but they don't give you the resources or the ability to do that, that's just not fair. And so with God, we receive the commands, but we also receive the empowerment. And this temple language teaches us this, that we are empowered. We're not just commanded to choose differently, we're empowered to choose differently. We're not just commanded to love, we're empowered to love. We're not commanded to purify, we're empowered to purify. We're not just commanded to do those things. We are empowered. And so we are able. I want you to know we are able. it's like, man, in this culture, it's so hard. And, you you know, my kids are constantly being flooded with stuff they shouldn't see. And it's difficult to be a Christian. Yeah, yes, and yes, it's all true. But understand you are empowered. He's not just saying perfect holiness. He said, I will empower you through my Holy Spirit, because you are the temple to perfect holiness. So we can be the resistant, gritty, holy, righteous, good people that God has called us to be. One last one. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a, here's the language again, spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God, to God through Jesus Christ. For in, uh, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that causes them to to fall so let's talk for a minute here about the living stone we've already established that Jesus is the cornerstone but that cor- as that cornerstone as that living stone he was rejected by humans condemned hung on a cross killed and rose from the dead and you may not and you probably won't go through that level of rejection that Jesus went through as the living stone or as the cornerstone but when you live a holy, set-apart, resistant life that we're talking about, you should, be ex- you should expect to be rejected by human beings that don't get it. You should expect that. So when a little bit of resistance comes, when a little bit of hardship comes, please do not be, it's okay to not like it, nobody likes it, It's okay to not like it, but please don't be surprised by it. So Jesus was rejected by humans, but look at what it says. He was chosen by God. At the same time that he was being rejected by his culture, at the same time that he was going to the cross, at the same time that he was being put to death, he was being rejected by humans, but chosen by God. And there should be great comfort to us in that truth. Because you may be rejected by this culture. You may be persecuted by people. You may be rejected, but understand the same thing is true for for you through the Holy Spirit. You are chosen by God. And he loves you. And he has saved you. And he has a plan for you. And he is building you into the spiritual house. And here's the other thing that means. that as, As he saves you, he's building you into this home called the church. Here's the other thing that means. You won't be rejected by everyone. Right, You get that, right? You will be rejected by some, but you are being built into this spiritual house called the church. And so you are called to a holy people who will love you. You are called to a saved people who will accept you. You are called into a righteous people who will not turn their back on you. You are called into a people. You will not be rejected by all people. There is a home for you. Through Christ. There is a place for you. And culture may not like your stances on this, that, or the other thing. But in the church you will find a holy, set apart, righteous people who say, come on in. Come on in. We are the resistant. We are the holy. We are the righteous. And there is a place for you. And in the church, you will find a people that should love you and care for you and walk alongside you. And in the church, you will find a people that you should love and care for and walk alongside, just like has been done for you. So I love how this thing called the church and and, and this temple is supposed to work. Notice it in this text. It's made up of a a people who are called to be, the text says, priests, like, like like the priests of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you know what the priest did? You know what his job was? The priest made sacrifices that were pleasing to God. So this is unlike, this makes the church different and unlike any other organization in the world, I think. All right, so after church today, you are going to go to a restaurant and you are going to eat somewhere, most likely, and you are going to expect at that restaurant to be well served you will turn on the television later today and maybe you will catch up on political shows and you will expect as you watch that television show you will expect your politicians to serve you well you will watch sports later today football is back right praise be to god for his indescribable gift all right you will you will watch your your favorite team and you will expect that team to entertain you and serving well and serve you well it is so ingrained in us But this thing called the church, it works totally different because everybody in it is the priest. And everybody in it is willing to make sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And that makes us totally different. Because the vision is not how well served can I be, although my prayer is that you are well served. It is not how well served can I be. It is what are the sacrifices I can make because I'm a priest too. So it's a group of people that are eager to worship God fully because it's not about me, it is about him. I may not like the songs, I may not like the tempo, tempo, not temple, I may not like the tempo, I may not like the beat, but I am raising my hands to God as a spiritual sacrifice, pleasing to him. It's a group of people that are willing to serve each other passionately because it's not about me, it's about him, and it's about the person next to me. It's a group of people that are willing to practice radical generosity, a group of people willing to exercise their spiritual gifts, willing to sacrifice, willing to stay unified. The church becomes the church. I know I'm preaching kind of hard today. I'm going to nap later, right? The, The church becomes the church when everybody in it adapts a priestly model and says, what sacrifices can I make? That are pleasing to God, that serve my neighbor, and that reaches the lost. So many people are asking the wrong question about the church. We're asking the wrong question, guys. What we're asking about the church is what am I receiving? It's the wrong question. The question we should be asking are what are my spiritual sacrifices? What are my sacrifices? that I'm willing to make for the good of the kingdom, for the good of my neighbor, for the good of that person far from God? What are the sacrifices I'm willing to make? Because God has made us into a temple. He's made us into a holy building. He's made us into a temple. And now it's like, hey, this really should not work, but the church does work. Hey, welcome to the temple. You get to be the priest. You get to make sacrifices. At least you're not the lamb, right? So, um... (laughs) The one being sacrificed. That would be worse, right? Welcome to the church. You get to be the priest, making sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God for the good of the church, for the good of the kingdom, for the good of His glory. What an honor. What an honor to be able to lay down our life and our rights and our privileges and our desires. To be able to lay it down for the good of the kingdom. What, a, what, what an amazing honor that you and I get to do. And instead, what I see around the world, not, not so much here at Northwest, but what I see around the world is people insisting on their rights and their preferences and their desires, and church after church after church is being wrecked by the model because it was never intended to be that way. It was like, "Hey, welcome in. You get to be the priest. You get to make sacrifices." Right? That was always the model of this thing called the church, and it's beautiful, and it's it's, it's incredible. And the American church has lost sight of it. We are so entertained. We are so entertained. We are entertaining ourselves to death. And what Netflix can do for us, and what Hulu can do for us, and what the movie theater can do for us, we expect the local church to do for us, and it's just not the game we're playing. It's just not what we're, you don't come in here and get a large popcorn, a large Diet Coke, like that's going to offset the popcorn, and, you know, and sit down and just eat. and be. That's just not what this is. It's not what we're doing. We are the temple. We are the priests. And we lay our lives down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And as as we get ready to receive his body and, and, and blood through this sacrament called communion, I want to pray for us as a church family that we understand this priestly model that we're called to because we have a high priest, Jesus Who demonstrated it. So may we be like him. May we walk like him. May we give like him. May we sacrifice like him. And may this thing called the local church be as beautiful as you intended it to be. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion here in just a minute you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other and like i said in the prayer this is an opportunity to remember our high priest that we're we're all called to be priests he's the high priest but that he demonstrated what life can look like when we sacrifice and when we give and when we lay our lives down and so this is an opportunity to remember what he's done so that we can even be in this thing called the temple that we can be in this people called the temple. He, he did it so that we could be a part of that and that we could make sacrifices uh, that, are, that are pleasing to him. And so just spend some time with your Lord, thank him for his sacrifice, and then I'll come back up here in just a minute and we'll receive communion all together as a church family. His body given for you, his blood poured out. Jesus, as we close out this series, may we be the people you've created us to be. May we be your body, your body, May we be servants. May we be your temple. May we be uh, every image that you've given us of the local church. Healthy, vibrant, self-sacrificing, service-oriented. And may we be what Paul calls that aroma going up to you, that pleasing aroma going up to you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, go ahead and stand up as you uh, get on with your Labor Day weekend. I want to encourage you to make your way uh, out the doors and to the right. Uh, Grab a book, um, one for every person. Uh, We'd love to have you uh, bring these in every Sunday. And uh, we're just going to start to work through some of the themes of the book of Romans. And uh, I couldn't be more excited. So I'd love to have you join us for that. Uh, God bless you guys. Have a great week ahead.